I'd like you to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 14 says, The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And the final three trumpet judgments in the book of Revelation are referred to as woes. They are woes because of the intense nature of these judgments on mankind. And we are now ready for the final one. And it's introduced in verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded. Now this seventh trumpet judgment is going to take us all the way to the end of the tribulation period. And so it is three and a half years in length, because time-wise, we're right at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation period. If you look back in chapter 11 and verse 3, he tells us there that the two witnesses are going to witness for 1,260 days, or for three and a half years. So we're right at the midpoint of the tribulation period, and the seventh trumpet judgment is going to take us all the way to the end. And so it really encompasses the final three and a half years of the tribulation, which are referred to by Christ in Matthew 24 as the Great Tribulation. Uh, in this judgment, we're going to see a series, another series of judgments, the bold judgments, but as we talked about earlier, they're actually contained within this seventh trumpet. And so it begins here at the midpoint of the tribulation, and it will culminate at the end of chapter 19 with the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now the initial, initial phase of this seventh trumpet, which we want to look at this morning, takes place in heaven. Uh, notice verse 11, chapter 11, verse 15. It says, And the seventh angel sounded, and there arose loud voices in heaven. Look at verse 19. And the temple of God, which is in heaven... Chapter 12, verse 1, and a great sign appeared in heaven. Verse 3, and another sign appeared in heaven. Verse 7, and there was war in heaven. Verse 10, and I heard a loud voice in heaven. Verse 12, for this reason rejoice, O heavens. And so the activity of the initial phase of the seventh trumpet takes place in heaven with repercussions on the earth. And we can separate them into four events. We're going to see the voices in heaven, the temple in heaven, the signs in heaven, and the war in heaven. And we'll look at those four events this morning with their repercussions on the earth. First of all, the voices in heaven. That's verses 15 to 18 of chapter 11. Notice verse 15, and the seventh angel sounded, and there arose loud voices in heaven, saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Now the first event that is recorded when the seventh trumpet sounds is a celebration in heaven. There are loud triumphant voices proclaiming that the kingdom of the world, which has belonged to Satan, he is called the ruler of this world, it has belonged to him, it has now become the kingdom of our Lord. Now that won't occur in its fullness until the end of the tribulation when Christ rides out of heaven and actually claims the earth. But the celebration has already begun. It's kind of like when you're watching a sporting event 
and uh, the game isn't over, but it might as well be. Well, that's the conditions here. I played basketball in Chicago uh, a lot of years ago. The, the game wouldn't be over yet, and the fans would be singing, na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na, hey-hey, goodbye, okay? Because the game was settled. Now, I hated that song. I still hate to hear it, probably because I heard the other team's fans sing it so often. Uh, but it's kind of like saying the game isn't over, but the, the end is already decided. And that's what's happening here. This seventh trumpet sounds, and it hasn't culminated yet, but, but heaven is already celebrating because the victory is sure. And the outcome is going to be permanent because, as you see at the end of verse 15, it says, and he will reign forever and ever. And when Christ takes his throne, it's going to be a permanent reign that he's going to establish. And, of course, this is where Handel got his, his words for his great Messiah. He shall reign forever and ever. You know, Satan offered Christ the kingdoms of the world in Luke chapter 4. He was the ruler of this world. He is the ruler of this world presently. He offered the kingdoms to Christ in Luke chapter 4. He said, if you'll bow down to me, I'll give you the kingdoms of this world. But Christ didn't receive the, the kingdom of this world by bowing down to Satan he received the kingdom of this world by crushing Satan on the cross. And here we see him taking what is rightfully his, and all of heaven is celebrating. And then in verse 16, it tells us, And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God. And the elders are seen doing what they're always doing in the book of Revelation. They get off their thrones, and they bow down, and they worship the Lord. And we're given the words of their praise in verses 17 and 18. It says, We give thee thanks, O Lord God the Almighty, who art and who wast, because thou hast taken thy great power and hast begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and thy wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time came to give their reward to thy bondservants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to those who fear thy name, the small and the great and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And this praise is a praise of thanksgiving. And they're saying, thank you, Lord, that you have begun to reign. And Christ's reign has an impact on three groups. They're identified in verse 18. The first group he talks, they talk about are the dead. Those are the unbelievers. And he says of the dead, verse 18, and the nations were enraged, and thy wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged. The unbelievers will be judged. Then he talks about another group, and that is the believers. He says, and the time to give their reward to thy bondservants, the prophets, that's probably Old Testament saints, and to the saints, that's probably the church, and to those who fear thy name, that may be a reference to those who are saved during the tribulation, because he mentions three different groups, separate groups, makes a distinction in these believers. And he says the thing that's going to happen with believers is that they're going to be rewarded. And so the dead, the unbelievers are going to be judged, the believers are going to be rewarded. And then there's a third group that he mentions. They mention at the end of verse 18, and it is those who destroy the earth. And then I think is a reference to Satan and his demons. And it says they will be destroyed. And so the unbelievers will be judged. The believers will be rewarded. Satan and his demons will be destroyed. And so we see the first event in heaven is the voices we hear. They're celebrating the victory and they're thanking God that he's finally going to judge sin and judge sinners. 
And then there's a second event we see in heaven, and that is the temple in heaven. And it's mentioned in verse 19 of chapter 11. It says, And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstone. Now there is a temple of God in heaven. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23, refers to the earthly tabernacle as the copies of the things in heaven. And though the Antichrist will at this time be seated in the temple that is on the earth, God will be in the real temple. And during this moment, John sees a glimpse into heaven and he sees the temple of God. And out of that temple comes sounds and thunder and lightning and an earthquake and hail, and God's judgment comes pouring out of heaven. But if you'll notice, John could have seen a lot of things in the temple, but only one thing appears, and that is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence, and the Ark of the Covenant represented God's covenant with Israel. The Ark of the Covenant, it represented the promises that God had made to Israel. I think this is kind of exciting because John looks into heaven, he sees the temple of God and out of that temple comes all these judgments down on the earth and in the midst of all that he sees the Ark of the Covenant. And what's the message? The message is that in the midst of God's judgment, his promises to Israel will not fail. And so we see this brief glimpse into heaven and there's the temple of God and the one thing that he sees is the Ark of the Covenant reminding him of God's faithfulness. And so the second event in heaven is a glimpse into this temple of God to remind us that God's faithful covenant with Israel still stands. And that's kind of exciting. And then there's a third event, and that is the signs in heaven. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 6. And we'll see two signs in heaven. We'll see a woman and a dragon. First of all, we'll see a woman, verses 1 and 2. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars, and she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. Now this is no ordinary woman. She's clothed with the sun, she's standing on the moon, she's wearing a crown of twelve stars, she's pregnant, and she's in labor about to deliver. You can envision that. Now, who is this woman? Well, first of all, let's determine who this child is because that's a lot easier. And the child is identified for us in verse 5. It says, And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now, who is it that will rule the nations with a rod of iron? Well, when we turn over to Revelation chapter 19 and verse 15, that's the same phrase used of Christ when he comes out of heaven, that he's coming to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And who is it that was caught up to God and to his throne? Well, it's Christ. And so this child is Christ. So when we understand that, we come back to the woman and we say, well, who is this woman? Who is it that gave birth to Christ? Well, some people say it's Mary. And the Catholic Church holds that position, that this is Mary, and this is one of the passages they use uh, 
for the idea that uh, of Mary's miraculous assumption into heaven and that that's where she is now. But if you will look carefully at this passage, we'll realize that this is not really Mary that it's talking about here. Because down in verse 13 it says, And when the dragon saw that, that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child, and the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman in order that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nurtured for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Whoever this woman is, she's going to be persecuted for three and a half years during the tribulation period. And down in verse 17 it says, The rest of her offspring were persecuted by Satan. So whoever this woman is, she's around during the time of the tribulation being persecuted by the dragon. Some people say this is the church, that this woman is the church. But that doesn't really hold up either because the church didn't bring forth Christ. Christ brought forth the church. And the church is never identified in Scripture as a woman or ever a woman who is pregnant. The church is always pictured as the bride of Christ. She's always pictured as a virgin whenever she's pictured in Scripture. And so this is not the church that he's talking about here when he's talking about this woman. Uh, there are many other positions we don't have to go into. Christian science says this is Mary Baker Eddy. And the child is Christian science and she gave birth to that. Well, that doesn't even warrant our attention. Um, but, but let's see who this is. If you'll notice in verse 1, it says a great sign. The word sign means symbol. And so this is not... A literal woman this is a figurative woman it's a symbolic woman and who is the symbolic woman who gave birth to Christ well that's easy it's Israel Israel is a symbolic woman that gave birth to Christ in Romans chapter 9 and verse 4 speaking about Israel Paul says to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh Israel is the one through whom Christ came and so as he sees this symbolic woman it's a picture to us of Israel you say, well, why is she clothed with the sun and standing on the moon? And why are the 12 stars on her crown? What does that all refer to? Well, the best I can tell, if, if you would go back, and you don't need to now, but if you'd go back to Genesis chapter 37, verses 9 and 10, there we're told about the dream that Joseph had. And Joseph had a dream about the sun and the moon and the 11 stars bowing down to him. And the sun represented Jacob or Israel, the moon rep represented Rachel. The 11 stars represented his brothers. And so I assume Joseph then would be the 12th star. So when you put it all together, you've got a sun, moon, and 12 stars representing that family, that family being the family of Israel. And so here we come to chapter 12 of Revelation. We find this woman. She's got the sun, the moon, and the 12 stars representing Israel. Well, there's a second sign in this chapter, and that is a dragon. Notice verse 3, and another sign appeared in heaven and behold a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and on his heads were seven diadems and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Now who is this dragon? 
Well, we don't have to guess about this because if you come down to verse 9, it says, And the great dragon who was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan. So we're told who the dragon is here. The dragon is Satan. And he's identified as a dragon here. Now, again, this is a sign. It's symbolic language. He doesn't look this way, if you saw him. He's identified for the purposes of our understanding this way in this chapter. He's called a dragon, which is about the most threatening and cruel beast you could imagine. He is red in color. Uh, this is a term that's only used one other place. It's used in Revelation 6-4 of the red horse and rider, which was a picture to us of war and bloodshed. And so here he is. He's red in color, the picture of blood. He's this cruel dragon. He's got seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns. You say, well, what does all that mean? Well, look over at chapter 13 and verse 1. It says, And he stood on the sand of the seashore, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. Whatever these horns and crowns and, and uh, heads refer to, he's related to this beast who's going to come out of the sea in chapter 13 who we'll find to be the Antichrist. And so it relates Satan to the Antichrist. Now, I'm not going to go into what these things mean this morning. We'll talk about it next week when we look at this coming ruler who's referred to most often as Antichrist. But suffice it to say this morning that in general the horns speak of power and the crowns speak of authority over the kingdoms of the world. That's sort of the representation. Horns speak of power crowns speak of authority and so he's one who has authority over the kingdoms of the world and as we've seen already he is the ruler of this world and then with this tail it says he swept away a third of the stars now in Revelation we've seen that a star is at times literal used of a literal star at other times the word star is used figuratively of angels and I think that's the way we would take this that when Satan was when he fell, when Lucifer fell, he took with him a third of the angels of heaven. And so they fell with him. So there we have the two signs. We have a woman representing Israel. We have a dragon representing Satan. And then in verses 4 to 6, we see their interaction. First of all, we see their past encounter in verses 4 and 5. And then we're going to see their future encounter in verse 6. First, their past encounter. Notice verse 4 at the end. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Now this takes us back to the birth of Christ. And what was Satan doing? He was waiting. You, you see the picture here. It's in symbolic language. But he's waiting for this child to be born out of Israel so that he can devour the child when he comes. And, of course, we have a, a vivid illustration of that in, in Matthew chapter 2 where we find that Joseph and Mary actually had to take the baby Jesus and flee into Egypt. And Herod had all the male children under two years old murdered in Bethlehem, trying to kill the child when he's born. And then verse 4 points out his failure in this attempt. It says, or verse 5, and it says, And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God 
and to his throne. Now, this verse doesn't go into a lot of detail. It jumps from Christ's incarnation to his ascension. But that's because the ascension really points out Satan's failure because his attempt was to devour the child and he failed in his attempt because Christ has been exalted to the throne of God in heaven. And so there we see the past encounter between these two, uh, Satan and the woman Israel. His attempt was to kill the child that came from Israel, Christ. But then we switch to a future encounter in verse 6. And verse 6 tells us, And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there, might be, there she might be nurtured for 1,260 days. Now when Satan failed to destroy the child, he turns his attention to destroying the woman, Israel. And we're told here that the woman, Israel, will flee into the wilderness where, where God will hide her for 1,260 days or three and a half years. And so during the Great Tribulation, these last three and a half years of the Tribulation, Israel will be confronted with the worst wave of anti-Semitism the world has ever seen. She is going to be pursued by Satan with all his energy. Now you may have noticed that between verses 5 and 6, there's a gap of about 2,000 years there. Uh, that's where the church fits. And in the, book of uh, in the book of Revelation, as we've said so many times, uh, in these chapters dealing with the tribulation, the church is not mentioned because the church has been taken out of the world. And so there's no reason to bring the church in here. This is God's dealing with Israel. And Israel was involved in the birth of Christ, and Satan was there to try to take that child and destroy that child. And the next time we see God working with Israel is during this seven-year tribulation period when it happens again. So we find a complete gap in there, no mention of the church age because that's a separate thing from God's working with Israel. This is Daniel's 70th week, God's final week of years in working with Israel. And so the third event in heaven is the two signs, a woman representing Israel and a dragon representing Satan. And uh, not only were they major players in God's purposes in the past, but they will be major players in God's purposes in the future during the tribulation period. And then there's a fourth event, and that is the war in heaven. And it covers chapter 12, verse 7 through verse 17. And we'll see five aspects to this war. First, the outbreak. Second, the outcast. Third, the outcry. Fourth, the outlook. And fifth, the outrage. First of all, we see the outbreak. Verse 7. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels waged war. Now, ever since the fall of Satan, there has been a spiritual battle going on, but this is different. What is being described here is an all-out war, and it occurs at the midpoint of the tribulation. And there are two armies. One army is Michael and his angels. The other army is the dragon and his angels, the third of the stars that he took with him. Now, what's interesting to me in this verse is that this is not a war between God and Satan because that wouldn't be fair. It's a war between Michael and Satan. It's angel to angel. And we often think of Satan being on the same level as fighting God. That isn't even where the battle takes place. 
It's between Michael, who's called the archangel, who does battle with Satan. And even then, Satan is outmatched. Because when we come to the second point, the outcast, we find it in verses 8 and 9. Notice what happens. And they, speaking of the dragon and his angels, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. The devil and his angels aren't strong enough, and they aren't welcome in heaven anymore, and so they are cast out, they are cast down to the earth. And just so there's no mistaking who he's talking about here, he gives some of, some of the dragon's various aliases in verse 9. And he says, he's the serpent of old, referring back to the Garden of Eden. He is the devil, that name means accuser. He is Satan, that word means adversary, and those are the two common ones we find in Scripture. And then we're told about his mission. It says he is the one who deceives the whole world. He is the one who is a liar from the beginning, and he continues to lie to men and blind the eyes of this world. That's his mission. And so we find he is cast out of, of heaven at this midpoint of the tribulation, and that's one of the reasons why the last three and a half years are going to be called the Great Tribulation, because Satan is actually barred out of heaven, and he is isolated to this earth, and the activities that go forth from there on are going to cause great tribulation on the earth. The third thing we see in this war in heaven is the outcry. Verses 10 and 11. Notice verse 10, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have co has come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown out, the one who accuses them before our God day and night, and they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even to death. When heaven sees Satan being expelled, they know that this is the beginning of the end. And we hear the voices again in heaven, and they're saying, Now, now's the time, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom and the authority of God and of Christ have come. And in their exhilaration, we gather some valuable information. It's not intended to really be here necessarily, uh, but in their exhilaration and as they rejoice, they tell us some interesting things in verses, the end of verse 10 and verse 11 because they really tell us some information about Satan. They tell us how he operates and they tell us how to overcome him. It's right here, a little concise version. How he operates is in verse 10. It says, He is the one who is the accuser of the brethren, the one who accuses them before God day and night. You know what Satan's strategy is with you? He goes and he takes your sin and he drags it before God and he says, Look at this. Look at that. Look at them. Look at him. He claims to be your child. She claims to be your child. Look at them. Look at what they're doing. That's what he does night and day before God. That's his strategy, to drag us before him, drag our unworthiness before God and say, look at these people. They're supposed to be your children. And look how they behave. He accuses us night and day before the Father. But not only does it tell us how Satan operates, it tells us how Satan can be overcome and that we find in verse 11. 
and it gives us three factors here. They're all essential in overcoming Satan. The first is the blood of the Lamb. The victory is not found in our strength. It's found in the blood of the Lamb. And you know, apart from the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, does Satan have something to accuse you of? He does me. I'm wiped out. Apart from the blood of the Lamb, I'm guilty before the Father. I deserve to be accused. But here he says, uh, they overcome him by the blood of the Lamb because it's the blood of Christ that silences Satan's accusations. And then there's a second thing he mentions. They overcome him by the word of their testimony. And that's the gospel. That's our dynamic. That's the power of God unto salvation. It can break the shackles of sin and Satan. And it's the word of God that frustrates Satan and limits Satan's activity. And that's why I'm convinced that a church that preaches the word of God clearly with power and conviction is a church where Satan is frustrated and restricted and confined because he is overcome by the word of our testimony when we hold up the word of God. But then there's a third thing he mentions, and that is the reality of their dedication. You see the end of verse 11? And they did not love their life even to death. What a great statement. That's dedication. And when Satan runs into an individual who is willing to die for his commitment to Jesus Christ, he is overcome. And you know, the Christian uh, who will give up his standards for a little fun and a little money and a little fame is constantly clobbered by Satan. But the Christian who is willing to lay down his life for Jesus Christ is an overcomer because that's what faith is. Faith takes the promises of Christ and applies them to my life. And so during the outcry of the war in heaven, we get the equation for victory over Satan. We're to stand on the blood of the Lamb. We're to hold up the word of our testimony. And we are to let go of the love of our own life. And that's where victory is found. Then there's a fourth point here in the war, and that is the outlook. And we see that in verse 12. It says, For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Satan is cast out of heaven, and that's wonderful for heaven. The outlook in heaven is great. So as we talk about the outlook, heaven's rejoicing and things are wonderful because Satan is now ca cast out. He doesn't accuse anybody before God anymore. He's out of the picture in heaven. So things are great there, but there's another half to this outlook. And it says, Woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Satan is cast down to the earth. He's confined to the earth. And he's extremely angry, and he knows he's only got a short time left, and so he is going to strike out with all his energy to bring whatever turmoil he can. Uh, and so he says, woe to the earth. Satan is down here. He's kind of like a trapped animal. When he's all he's got is a little energy left, and he's going to spend it to try to harm someone. And so the outlook on the earth is bleak. The outlook in heaven is wonderful. Rejoice. The outlook on the earth during that great tribulation is bleak. And so he says, woe to the earth. And then there's a fifth part of this war in heaven that we see. And that is the outrage 
in verses 13 to 17. And these verses are simply really an expansion on what we saw in verse 6. They just go into a little more detail on that verse. Verse 13 says, And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Satan can't get to Christ anymore. He can't get to the church anymore. So he takes out his wrath on the only people he has left, and that is Israel. And he takes out his wrath on her, verse 14, and the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman in order that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. God is going to deliver Israel by providing her a place in the wilderness and she's going to be there for a time, times, and half a time. That's three and a half years. Time singular, time plural, which is two and a half a time, three and a half years. We've seen it expressed in various ways. And this is really a fulfillment of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24. Uh, verse 15, he says, When you see the abomination of desolation in the temple, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. When you see the Antichrist take his place in the temple of God, making himself out to be God, it's time to flee. And he's referring to Israel, those in Judea. Israel is going to be persecuted during that time, and so they're to flee to the mountains. And here we're told that God has a place for them in the wilderness, a place prepared. Now, a lot of people have speculated about this because there's a place in southern Palestine called Petra, and it's a city really built into the rocks there. Interesting place. A lot of people have speculated that that's the place that God is going to take Israel to preserve her during this great tribulation period. In fact, there are Christians that go there and store Bibles all over in Petra today, uh, figuring that may be the place. Uh, others have, have supposed that when it says here in verse 14, and the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman that she might fly into the wilderness, that it's going to be an airlift. Uh, you know, God couldn't say the two wings of a Boeing 747, so he said, you know, two wings of an eagle. Well, uh, that's nice, but I, I really think that that's not necessary because actually this same terminology is used back in Exodus 19.4, used of God's deliverance of Israel when he delivered them out of Egypt. And he said there, I bore you on eagles' wings. Now, they didn't fly out of it, Egypt. Uh, so it's not necessary that they're going to fly into the wilderness on this occasion. But the idea is that God delivered them. He preserved them in that situation. And just as he took them out of Egypt and preserved them in the wilderness in this great tribulation period, he's going to do the same thing again. He's going to take them and he's going to have a place where he's going to preserve them and keep them in safety in the wilderness. And then verse 15 says, And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth, after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. And I don't know what's going on here. Uh, but uh, whether this is literal or not, I'm, I'm not sure because this is such a symbolic chapter. And we have the uh, water, it says, like a river coming out of the dragon's mouth, and it goes down, and the idea is that he's trying to destroy Israel. She goes into the wilderness, and he's trying to destroy her. Whether this is a literal water, or some have supposed, since it's coming out of his mouth, it may be uh, propaganda and lies against Israel to turn the world against Israel, I don't know. But at any rate, uh, the attempt is deterred and, and, and prevented, and God preserves his people. And then verse 17 says, And the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring 
who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. He can't get to Israel, the woman who's in the wilderness, and so he turns his attention to the rest of her seed. You say, well, who is that? Well, that must be a reference to the 144,000 witnesses that we read about earlier in the book of Revelation. Those witnesses coming from each tribe in Israel. Those ones who are going to be witnesses reaching out around the world and bringing people, Gentile people, to Jesus Christ. And so when he can't get to Israel, when God keeps him from getting to Israel in the wilderness, he's going to turn his attention to these 144,000. And it tells us about them that they are the ones who keep the commandments of God, that's Old Testament, and hold to the testimony of Jesus, that's New Testament. So these are going to be Jews who hold to their Old Testament uh, teachings and yet have come to faith in their Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And they don't have to be preserved in the wilderness because they are ones who can overcome Satan just as we read about in chapter 12 and verse 11. They overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb, because of the word of their testimony, and that they did not love their life even to death. They didn't need to be preserved in the wilderness because they are overcomers by faith in Christ. They stand on the blood of the Lamb, they hold up the testimony of His Word, and they're willing to die for their commitment to the Lord Jesus. And I guess, if anything, that's what we need to get out of this lesson this morning. The thing that we see in these four events in heaven is basically that God's going to be working with Israel during the tribulation period. Because we see the voices in heaven and it's, it's the elders, it's the church that's rejoicing in heaven. We see the glimpse at the temple of God, and there we see the Ark of the Covenant, God's covenant with Israel. He's still holding faithful to those promises. We see the uh, two signs. One is the woman Israel. The other is the dragon, Satan. And they've got a future encounter during the tribulation period. And then we see the war in heaven. It's going to begin in heaven, but it's going to end on the earth as Satan is cast here, and his target of vengeance is going to be the people of Israel. And just as uh, the 144,000 will stand on the blood of the Lamb, the word of God's testimony, and their willingness to die for their faith in Him, we can take that challenge because we can be overcomers today as well by that same equation. Let's close. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this glimpse into a future day. And um, Lord, we thank You for what it reveals to us about what You're going to do with your people Israel once again. And Lord, I pray that during this day when we live, when persecution seems to be so light, we pray that we might take the same principles of commitment and apply them to our walk with you. Lord, that as we realize that Satan is presently available to go before you and accuse us, we thank you that we have an advocate before the Father who is Jesus Christ the righteous. We thank you that we stand on the blood of the Lamb that we hold up the word of our testimony. And Lord, I pray that we might be those who can say that we don't hold dear our own lives, but we're willing to lay them down for you. We pray it and give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.